Well, we've been following Jesus through the Gospel of John. And we've observed through the text of Scripture, Jesus performing miracle after miracle after miracle. And as we look at the example of the New Testament, it's easy for us to think this way. If only Jesus appeared today, today in our day, and if he just performed some of these miracles before the eyes of our watching world, it's easy to assume that because of that, more people would come to Christ. But what we see in our passage today, or what we will see, and what we've been observing, is that the Bible reveals a shocking indictment. Many of the Jews of Jesus' time, they knew the Old Testament stories. They anticipated the coming of their Messiah. But when he finally showed up, despite performing miracle after miracle, still many of the Jews rejected him. But it's more than just an outright rejection. Is that the more Christ revealed himself to them, the more he presented himself to them, the more they hardened their hearts toward Christ. I don't know if any of you have ever had this experience where it is sad, but it reminds us of our need for God's power and grace where you want to share the gospel with one of your loved ones, maybe your family member, maybe a coworker, maybe a friend, and maybe in the early days they listen to a little bit of what you have to say, but over time they start telling you, no, stop, don't even start. I don't want to hear it. And the more you share and the more you love and the more you try to witness, the more heart, the heart grows harder and harder and harder and harder. It's a process that I think all of us can understand. And so I've entitled our sermon today, Bread of Life for Hearts of Stone. Bread of Life for Hearts of Stone. And today we find ourselves in the middle of Jesus' Bread of Life discourse. Today we're going to see from our text two reasons why people reject Christ. Two reasons why many today would still reject Christ, even if he showed up and performed miracles before their eyes. But in the portions of application, I want to speak to many of your hearts. I want to offer encouragement. I want to encourage any of you, especially parents, but any of you with loved ones who were exposed to Christianity, but now your loved ones have strayed from Christ. And maybe you have done all the things according to the book. None of us are perfect, but maybe you've done everything you could to be a good witness, but yet God has not soften the heart of your loved ones. If that's you, I want to offer you some encouragement today from the hard teachings of Jesus. Even in Jesus' hardest teachings, he offers bread of life that is soft for our souls. And then secondly, I want to offer in application practical encouragement for all of us as believers who may lack hunger for God in various seasons of life. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, by his grace, your heart has never grown to a point where it's as hard as stone, but there is a sense of spiritual apathy. There are seasons where we don't hunger for the bread of life. We don't want to eat the word of God, and as a result, it's a type of hardening, but yet God still softens our hearts eventually. If that's you, I want to offer some practical encouragement from our passage, but first, let's look at the two reasons why, G why people reject Christ and the Jews, why they reject Christ, even though Jesus performed miracles before their very eyes. If you have God's word, will you meet me in John chapter 6? John chapter 6, and we're going to pick up in verse 36. We're going to go back into part of the passage we studied last week. John chapter 6, starting in verse 36. And the first reason why people reject Christ is they have yet to hear the Father's call. In other words, the Father has yet to soften their hearts. They have yet to hear the Father's call. Now, by design and purpose, I wanted to choose language of potential. The text will say today that nobody can come to, the, to, to Jesus unless God first draws them, but I wanted to put this in the positive language of potential because that is the truth. The truth is 
God is in the business of saving people every single day. He is in the business of saving people that we would never imagine that he would save. And he saves people regardless of our works, regardless of our mistakes, or regardless of our positive influence, the Lord determines when people get saved and how they come to Christ. And our own lives are testimony of this truth. And so each and every person that we pray for, until they go home, until they pass away, there's always a potential that they are yet to be saved. That the Father can save the thief on the cross. Jesus can save a man who is a criminal on the cross before he dies. And so if that is truth, then the hope is that people who don't believe in Jesus in our lives, they have yet to hear the Father's call. And with that, I want you to see why people reject Jesus. Verse 36, here's what Jesus said. But I said to you that you've seen me, yet you do not believe. Verse 37, here's why you don't believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Notice verse 37, Jesus himself says, All that the Father gives to him will come to him. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And so this gives you some context for Jesus' mission. He has come to earth to do the will of his Father. And so the Father has given him, these are the people who are going to come to you, Jesus. These are the people you're going to die for. And when you die for them, they will experience the fruits of your labor. And then they will enter into your rest. And so Jesus is not offended when his own family members at first reject him. He is not offended when the Jews, his own people, reject him. Because Unlike us, he has some insight. He knows who the Father has given him. He knows that Judas is going to betray him. He knows these things, so he's operating according to the plan of his Father, and that gives him confidence. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus is overjoyed by this fact. It breaks his heart when he knows that his own people are going to reject him. But his confidence, again, is not in the response of the people. Meaning... His success, whether or not he is successful, to him, it's not a matter of how well he evangelizes. He's perfect. But it is a matter of the Father's plan and the Father's will, and that's, that is where he anchors his hope and his confidence. Now, I want you to see this repeated in verses 39 to 40. And he says, this is the will of him who sent me. So he repeats this twice. I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Then once again in verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me. I'm doing the Father's will that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. So three times he says it. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise it up on the last day. So he's repeating himself, showing you once again that his confidence is not in his performance per se. It's not, but Jesus, we did this miracle. Why don't they believe? Right? That's, not, that's not what it is, but his Confidence is in, in the Father's will. And he says, all that the Father gives me, I will raise them up. Now I want you to skip down to verse 44. <clears throat> verse 44 is a hard and difficult teaching. This is the clearest statement that comes out of Jesus' mouth regarding the sovereignty of God when it comes to salvation. We're not talking about the Apostle Paul. We're not talking about Peter. We're talking about if you were to ask Jesus, Jesus Do you teach anywhere that nobody truly comes to salvation unless your father first chooses them and allows them to? This would be the verse. This is the clearest teaching from Jesus' mouth on the sovereignty of God when it comes to salvation. And this teaching is hard for people to accept, and it is hard for people of Jesus' day to accept. But it is clear and So I want you to see it. I I left this verse by itself on the slide that you can see it fully. It says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's why I show up and you guys still don't believe. That's why 
This is the answer to verse 36. And I will raise them up on the last day. You see, the people's hearts remain hard towards Christ. And now I want you to consider the practical realities. That the Jewish leaders, not only do they reject Jesus, they want to kill Jesus. And so these are the pastors. These are the shepherds. These are the shepherds of Israel. They're powerful. They have in their ability the, the priest, the Sanhedrin. They have the, the temple workers. They have in their ability the power to tell people, you're forgiven. No, you're not. God is pleased with you. God is not pleased with you. They have power. <clears throat> they have influence. They have ranking in culture and society. And if they are constantly hating and rejecting Jesus, what are the chances that the average person that wants to follow God, that the crowds would also be blinded? Consider our society today, and you will see that we are not too different. <clears throat> Consider the most influential people in our world today. Most, not all, but most reject Christ. Most of our public officials reject Christ. Most of our top universities and schools and professors, not all, but most, reject Christ. Most of our biggest and most profitable companies and corporations reject Christ. Our news media rejects Christ for the most part. Our most popular celebrities and top athletes that we look up to that influence people, they reject Christ. Our top musicians reject Christ. Need, need I go on? We are surrounded by arrows that are aimed every single day at shooting down any notion of God. And that's for the unbeliever. For the non-Christian, anytime you want to witness to them and you say one word of hope and point them to Christ, there are infinity, a million arrows coming to deflate that word that you just shared. Consider the believer. We wake up and we know the Word of God. We love the Word of God. We read the Word of God. Then we just open our email or we look onto our devices and we, and we begin to scroll through our newsfeed or we go to work. And all of a sudden, there's all these arrows coming trying to deflate the spiritual truth that you read in the morning or the prayer that you just said. That's the world we live in. So if it's hard for you and me as Christians to stay focused on Christ, how much harder is it for someone who is not yet saved and the Spirit has not yet opened their eyes and this were the crowds? Then that's why even if Jesus showed up today, just like he showed up then, and he's like, can't you guys see? Can't you see I am your Messiah? And he performs miracle after miracle. Everything in the world is showing them that Jesus is not their Messiah. And that's why they reject him. But there's something happening inside their hearts. Now let me clarify on verse 44 what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying you don't need to evangelize. That's the first thing. Jesus is not saying that you don't need to evangelize. You might ask this. It's called lazy theology. This is not true reform theology. right? When you say, hey, look at the verse. Nobody can come to Jesus anyway unless God draws them, so why evangelize? Let God do the work. Because it doesn't matter what I say. No one can come anyway. That's not what the Bible teaches. Matthew 28 commands us to make disciples, and that includes evangelism of the lost. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus told his disciples that they will be his witnesses. So over and over again, we are told to share our faith. And so God chose in his plan to use believers and our witness to bring people to Christ. But the, the, but the challenge for us is unlike Jesus and unlike God, we don't know who God wants to save. We don't know how God is going to save them, and we don't know when they're going to get saved. So our task is to trust God and to evangelize when he opens the door. Our task is to share the gospel and to pray, and we wait on God. To save people. We need to assume that every single person that we encounter, even those who say they hate Jesus, we have to assume that they have potential. That the reason why they're rejecting Jesus is because the Father has yet to soften their hearts, but the Father can soften their hearts. 
And we have to have that hope. The second thing that Jesus is not saying. So Jesus is not saying, don't evangelize. The second thing Jesus is not saying is that there might be some of you who want him, but you might not be chosen. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying, well, you might want me, but my father might prevent you because nobody can come to me unless the father draws you. In fact, this passage is saying the very opposite. This passage is saying if you want Jesus, it's because the Father has drawn you. If you want Jesus, you can have him. The problem here in John 6 is that Jesus is showing them everything about the truth, but yet they reject him. They don't want him because there's something that needs to happen in their hearts, which is the miracle of the Holy Spirit softening their hearts. The Father softens the heart through the Spirit of God. Now, some of you have heard this classic illustration told in different ways. And I'll share this with you because I think it helps you just to have a simple mental picture of how we get saved. You see this beautiful garden with a stone archway and and, and there's a gate. And when you see this garden, you assume that, hey, in order for me to go into this garden, maybe it's like the Huntington Library in the garden there. Beautiful. Okay. And so you're like, I got to pay to get in. I got to pay to get in. But someone tells you, look at the sign. And so you see the sign outside of the gate. It says, free of charge. Enter. Anyone can enter. Anyone can enter free of charge. So you're like, what? I can enter? So you walk in, and as soon as you get in, you turn around, and you look, and on the back side, it says, you were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. Jesus paid the price, right? And so that's what salvation is like. When someone is presenting the gospel to you, you are making a decision. You're responding. You're using your mind. You're using your heart. You're you're, you're deciding and you're praying. And people have been praying for you. And maybe some of you, you're considering apologetics. Others of you, you're looking at your life and you're looking at the wreck of your life and you're like, I need Christ. And you're really making a commitment. But it's not until you become a Christian and you read your Bible and you look at a verse like this and you're like, oh, that's what it means in 1 John chapter 4, 19, when it says we love because he first loved us. And I think if you can understand it that way, that what Jesus is saying is that apart from divine intervention, and apart from the Father softening your hearts, you would not have chosen him. You would have seen the choice, like Jesus offers the option, you want me or not. But even though you see very clearly that the options are put before you, your will is, will remain enslaved. Jonathan Edwards wrote a book entitled Freedom of the Will, and Martin Luther wrote a book much earlier called The Bondage of the Will. Different titles, they're talking about the exact same thing. They're saying that because of sin, even when the human being sees the choice to choose Jesus, they will not exercise their will because their will is not free. Their will is enslaved. Luther says the will is in bondage to sin and needs to be freed. Jonathan Edwards is saying the same thing. The will needs to be freed. When the will is freed from sin, when the Holy Spirit frees your heart, you will choose to respond to Christ. I'll give you another illustration. I pray for you. And when I pray for you, I want to pray for you. I don't feel like it's my job description. I don't feel like I have to. I don't feel forced And when I'm praying for you, I'm happy. I don't feel forced. But guess what? When I'm praying for you, the Bible also says that we should pray for one another. So I can be 100% certain that I am in obedience right there to the will of God. At the same time, God in his sovereignty is connecting the two. And in that moment when I'm praying for you, not only am I obedient to the will of God in Scripture, but that probably is the will of God for me to live in that moment. When I'm in sin... I am not in the will of God. So when you and I respond freely to Jesus Christ, that is what's happening, is that there's a supernatural event called conversion that's happening, that you're seeing the gospel, and unlike the Jews, you see Jesus presented to you. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit has freed your will. So you're choosing Christ, and in that moment, you don't feel coerced, you don't feel like a robot, you don't feel forced. You love Christ, and your affections are being renewed and opened. And so you respond to Jesus, and you feel free. 
But really, it's because the Holy Spirit is doing the work in your heart. And in that moment, your freedom is compatible with God's will. That's what's happening. You see the compatibility of your human responsibility and the sovereignty of God. And we call that sovereign grace. It is by the grace of God that we are saved. And that's what the Word of God does to you, is that the Word of God makes sense to you. And in that moment, you feel like you're being taught, not by man. It is not the words of Billy Graham or Greg Laurie or, or a preacher. So you're, you're at a harvest crusade or you're listening to the gospel. And it's not the man's words that, that are convincing you. You know and you feel, oh, God is speaking to me. Well, let me show you where Jesus says this. In the very next verse, look at verse 45. It says, it is written in the prophets, they all will be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. So the people who come to Jesus, it's because they can see in Jesus that he is speaking the word of God. They don't see in Jesus just a rabbi. They don't see in Jesus just a man. They see in Jesus that he is speaking the word of God, that he is God. And then in verse 46, no one has seen the Father, that's God, except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father, and he's talking about himself, that Jesus is the Son of God, so he's seen the Father, and now he brings the truth on behalf of his Father. Now notice, once again in verse 45, Jesus makes a a, a reference to Isaiah the prophet. And, And so when he quotes, they will all be taught by God, everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. This is Isaiah chapter 54, verse 13. Isaiah 54, 13. And the context of Isaiah 44, it's 54, 54, it's beautiful. It speaks of the future redemption and the glory of the people of God, where, where, where God in the future comes back to redeem his people. And Jesus is in essence saying that the true believers are the ones who receive his teaching. The true believers are the ones who experience this redemption and this future glory, and they are going to be taught by God. Now, here's a beauty that I want you to see as well. Okay, here is a beauty. Is that I don't want to spend too much time on this topic. This is more of a Sunday school topic. But in these very same verses where it says the Father has softened those who have come to Jesus, it also gives you security. That if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will struggle at times But the Father not only softens your heart, He secures your heart. All that come to Jesus, you will not lose your salvation, but you will persevere. It's not just this eternal security where you don't do anything and just sit at home. But no, as you struggle with sin, as you struggle through life, the Father secures you. So salvation is not Jesus saves you and you're hanging on by His hands like this and if you you let go, you're going to fall. No, no, no. He knows you can't do that. So he pulls you out of this bottomless pit and puts you onto the surface. And you're saved. It's not every single morning you're wondering if you're still going to be saved based on your performance. Look at these beautiful words. Verse 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Verse 39, whoever, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40, Everyone who looks upon the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And He repeats Himself, I will raise it up on the last day. So meaning true believers will turn to Christ and they will persevere in Christ and will receive resurrected body. And if you didn't get it there, there's, a, there's a no, one more time, verse 44, and I will raise them up on the last day. Jesus wants His listeners to be certain that those whom the Father softens, He will secure. That's the first reason why people reject Christ, because they have not yet been softened by the Father. But you know how we're going to see next week and in the weeks to come, there's these many crowds, many people in the crowds are following Jesus, and Jesus gives hard teaching, and then they walk away from him. And then he turns to his disciples and he says, are you guys going to walk away too? Right? And some of his disciples, not the 12, they end up walking away from him. And the reason why they walk away is because they haven't been secured by the Father, which means their hearts were never truly softened. Because those whom he softened, he secures. Now, point number two this morning is, what's the second reason why 
people reject Christ despite his display of miracles is they have familiarity but not yet faith. They have familiarity but not yet faith. We see this back in verses 41 to 43, then verses 47 to 50. I want you to see in verses 41 to 43 the example of a hardened heart that, that needs to be softened. It's from here that I want to offer encouragement for those of us with loved ones who uh, at one point they professed Christ, but now they're no longer walking with Christ. And um, I want to encourage you, okay? But before we get there, let's look at the text. Here's what Jesus says. Or John comments. John says in verse 41, So the Jews grumbled about him, meaning they grumbled about Jesus, because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. And they said, Is this... Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, familiarity, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. So what we see in those two, first two, those first two verses there, um, as well as verse 43, Jesus saying, do not grumble among yourselves, is that there was a familiarity. They were too familiar with him. They had not just grown up hearing about Jesus. They grew up around Jesus. Now, this confirms, this teaching here in these few verses, it confirms Jesus is ministering in Galilee. And so not only are these crowds people who come from afar, but among these crowds, many of them were from Jesus' hometown or home region. They, they, not only did they know about Jesus, but they watched him grow up. And so they could accept him as one of their own children, those hometown hero, but they could not accept him as Messiah. Who are you, son of Mary, son of Joseph the carpenter, to now tell me that you've come down from heaven? And Jesus uses the illustration of Numbers 11, where in Numbers 11, the Israelites grumbled about the manna that God had provided from heaven to sustain the Israelites as they wandered in the wilderness. God provided bread or this, it's manna, it's a, it's a sweet uh, substance, a sticky carbohydrate. I wouldn't exactly call it bread. I don't know what it is, but manna. And just like the people grumbled about what God had sent down, here the people are grumbling about the bread of life, Jesus Christ from heaven. And so Jesus says, I know what you're grumbling about. You see, we all know people that grew up in the church, but now they've strayed away. As a former youth pastor, this hurts me. Because there's people that I, 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 I know the parents. I, I know how hard you've tried and how you've prioritized Christ in your home. And, and I know some who, when we had them in youth, they were strong, actually. And they went off to college, and we don't know what happened. They did not end up at the right fellowship. <laughs> they, they went another way. And we wonder, what happened to the, whatever fruit we saw? So our only hope is that they were genuinely saved and they're going through a season of rebellion and the, and the Lord has His purpose to bring them back one day. But sometimes the, the decades pass, so that's why I'm saying it's been a while since I've been in youth ministry, more than 10 years now, and I'm wondering, Lord, when are you going to bring back these certain people? Are you ever going to bring them back? Were they ever saved to begin with? And this passage, it helps us to see that sometimes when you witness to these people, when you try to bring them back or when you try to talk to them, they don't want to hear anything that you have to say because they think they know better because they're over-familiar, right? So this is different from the person who's never heard about Jesus or even the person who's heard stories about Jesus, but they've been a non-Christian all their life. Sometimes they will say to you, I know what you're going to say to me. I know all the theology. Stop it. I heard those stories. Stop it. And the thing that hurts the most when they undercut you is saying, you're not perfect too. There's so many hypocrites in Christianity. Look, and then that just cuts you because you're like, you're right. I make mistakes. You're right. There, there's so much hypocrisy in Christianity. You're right. And yeah, you've, you've known everything. So you almost feel like, Okay, there's nothing more for me to say. Well, I, I think we continue to pray for opportunities, but here's where this passage challenges and encourages us, that this person needs prayer more than preaching. They don't need another Hanley sermon. 
They need prayer. They need you to go before the Lord and to pray for them to soften their hearts. They need you to petition to God more than to petition to them because they're too familiar. They're, they're like the crowds. I grew up, isn't this my parents' faith? Isn't this what I grew up learning in Sunday school? The world has something better for me is what the world has sold to them. They've heard enough preaching. Now they need God to soften their hearts. I want to offer encouragement, and this one especially for parents, encouragement for those with loved ones who have hardened their hearts towards Christ. One of my greatest fears, and my, my, our kids are really young, one of my greatest fears is uh, my children um, not believing in Jesus. And heightening that, it's they, my greatest fear is they reject Jesus because I am a pastor, and they get jaded. And that somehow, because I'm a pastor, because I've given my life to the church, that somehow they reject Jesus. And, and you can see how my thinking in that moment is all focused on my performance. And so when I pray for my kids, I also pray my heart can't help but to align and hurt with some of you, who, again, I might have been the youth pastor of your children, who right now might not be walking with Jesus. And so as a pastor, I, I know many of you. I mean, we, we make mistakes, but many of you, you've done everything in your power. You're, you're going to make mistakes, but you've done everything to try to point your kids toward Jesus. And, and, and what does this passage say to us? And you're, it's about election, and that's even harder, right? Is Really, God? Have you not chosen my child? That's not what Jesus is saying. But there's a simple ABC, and this is how I pray, and I, I pray that this would give you some hope. First, ask God to soften their hearts. You have to go to the Lord in prayer. And you know that, and I know you're still praying. But beyond just prayer, because prayer is your strongest weapon, God, please change them, soften them. Second, you have to believe yourself. Sometimes I pray, and I start saying, Lord, what did we do wrong? What did we say wrong? Did we not teach hard enough? Did we not teach soft enough? And you have to believe in the sovereign plan of God. That's where this scripture comes in. You pray, and then you believe in God's sovereign plan. And you believe, Lord, you will save them in your timing. It's not based on my performance. I want to then say, I want to encourage some of you parents who maybe you made mistakes. Maybe you feel guilty. Maybe you feel like, maybe you feel like that you didn't prioritize Christ in the home for a season and now you're on fire for Jesus. So you regret what happened 10, 20 years ago and you think it's your fault somehow that your kids aren't walking with Jesus. You know, there's a lot of times where I look at the grace of God in our lives where um, early on I, I looked at my youth ministry days. I was like, Lord, if only I wasn't so dogmatic, maybe some of these kids would still be saved, you know as if they were never saved to begin with. Maybe if I emphasize Jesus more than John Calvin. Maybe, Lord, if I was more mature. Right? It's, it's easy for us to look at that, but this passage shows us that if God is truly sovereign over salvation and if God's the one that needs to soften the heart, then the good news is that none of our sin and none of our mistakes can stop Jesus from saving people. Yes, we need to do everything we can not to be a stumbling block to the unsaved. But hindsight is 2020. We're talking about now, now, this present moment, if you have repented and if you're walking with Christ, it's never too late. All of our past mistakes cannot stop Jesus Christ from saving people that God wants to save including our own sin and our own shortcomings. And so if you believe, you have to yourself believe in the sovereignty of God. If you want your children to come to believe, you yourself have to believe in the sovereignty of God over salvation. And you need to receive his teaching, not as harsh teaching, but as a balm to your hurting soul. And to find comfort in the words of God's sovereign will. Nothing, just like nothing that you did right, all the right things you could do and that your kids can still be unbelieving, in the same way all the wrong things you could have done won't stop Jesus from working in his own timing 
And the last one, I think, is consume. Consume. Ask, believe, consume. Consume God's word for comfort. Nothing in this world will comfort you. You will cry tears. You will pray. But eventually, you have to find comfort in the rest of God's word. God's word, in an amazing way, feeds our souls and brings us immense comfort. And when you pray, and when you read, and when you consume, you need to picture yourself at the foot of the cross. You see, think this way. When our loved ones pass away and we want to remember them, where do we go? Many times we go to their memorial site, we go to their grave. But when someone is spiritually dead or wayward, you do not go to a metaphorical grave. You go to the cross. You go to the only source that is able to save them, the source that saved you. It's Jesus' death on the cross that paid for your sins, that would pay for their sins if they come back. And we pray that God would lead our loved ones to the foot of Calvary. We pray that as we're praying at the foot of the cross for our loved ones to come back to the Lord, that one day we would open their eyes and at the foot of the cross, there would be our children on their knees too because Jesus has brought them back and we meet them at the cross of Christ. So pray not at a a metaphorical spiritual grave. You pray at the cross of Calvary. And we pray for the cross, at the cross every single day, trusting in God's plan. And I don't know if you've gotten the big idea, but the big idea, every sermon, somehow, always takes you back to Christ because that's where we have to go. There is no hope for any of our theology, any of our practice, apart from the cross of Jesus Christ. And then in verses 47 to 50, we see Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever, and that's the hope, Anyone can believe who, uh, in God's plan, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Jesus says he's the bread of life. One may eat of it and not die. The people looked at Jesus and they did not take him into their hearts. They did not eat. They did not taste, or they got a little bit of a taste of the miracle bread, but they did not trust in the bread of life by receiving and consuming what Christ has to offer, which is himself and the gospel. Now, next week, we will say more about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, because that's what the passage says as a very hard teaching. But think about eating, once again, and bread. Bread is perishable, just like the manna in the wilderness was perishable. Only Christ offers eternal life. And the crowds needed to eat the bread of life. We have the words of life contained in Scripture. So how do you and I eat Christ? We trust Him, but what are we trusting in? The objective words about Christ from Scripture. Because a lot of religions will teach different things about Jesus. But only the Bible teaches us what's true about Jesus. And so it's from this idea of eating Christ and eating his word that I want to encourage you with for times where we lack hunger for God. It's the same ABCs. Ask, believe, consume. Ask God for a spiritual appetite. Ask God for a spiritual appetite. And then believe that you must eat the bread of life. Before I get to consume, I want you to consider this. When you lack spiritual hunger for God, think this way. It's just like your physical body. It's just like your physical body. How many of you guys have gone through seasons where you're just not hungry? You lose your appetite. You know what I'm saying? Especially when you're sick or when you're sad. What do they tell you? They tell you you need to eat anyway, right? So if, even if you're not hungry, your body needs food anyway. And if, what happens if you don't eat? When enough time passes, you're going to get sick. And eventually you'll die if you don't have nutrients. It's the same logic that applies spiritually. If you aren't hungry for God, you still need to feed yourself. And I get it that spiritually you're not strong enough, and this is why you need community. This is where you need people who are hungry and who are eating to feed you for that season and to walk with you and to help spoon food into your mouth spiritually until your heart is filled, until you're strong again. And then you can eat, and then you can feed others. You see, even when you're not spiritually hungry, you need to eat. And if you can't get yourself to eat, you have to believe that you must eat the bread of life or you're going to die. 
You have to take these words literally. Eat Christ and what the Bible says about Christ and not die. And we know this is talking about spiritual death and eternal life, but practically, on the everyday level, you have to actually believe that if you don't eat the Word of God, that you will spiritually die. And so ask God for a spiritual appetite. Beg Him to render you aid by the, spiritual, by the Spirit's power. Pray to Him like this. God, I don't want you. I, 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 when I open my Bible, it's boring. I don't like it. I'm distracted. I'm not hungry for you. Father, give me a spiritual appetite. Beg him. And then you've got to believe that you have to eat. You have to believe that you have to eat because the world will distract you with everything else, telling you you don't need to eat God's word. You don't need to eat God's word. So you have to believe. And that's why, again, you need people around you. If everybody around you doesn't care about God, if everybody around you is more influenced by the things of this world, you too will not eat. But if you are surrounded in a certain community of people who are fed on God's word, hungry for God's word, you too will inevitably get some of that, those crumbs and those crumbs will turn into bread. Okay, you, that's what you need. And then the third one, so ask, believe, you need to consume. But here's how I want to encourage you to consume. Is to consume God's word slowly. Sometimes when we do a Bible reading plan, which is good. You have to read lots of scripture each day. And if you miss a few days, you get discouraged and you want to quit, especially when you get in Leviticus because you're like five, six chapters, maybe 100 chapters behind. So you feel like you can't catch up. So when we read sometimes, for those of you who are on track, you're like, okay, I just got to read all these passages. I get, okay, checked off, done. It's about you know, length. It's about speed. It's about checking it off. Some of you need to play catch-up, and you're like, your body cannot digest too much food. You'll get sick when you eat too much. And if you eat too quickly, you get indigestion. You can't digest the food. You get indigestion. You get a heartburn. Your heart doesn't get fed and built up. It burns in the wrong way. So you take all these physical realities, and you take the spiritual metaphor. So we need to learn especially in our day, to read God's Word slowly in discipline and in community. Because our digital world has trained us to do what? Scroll and skim. Which means you look on a screen and you scroll. And when you're scrolling for what you want, you're, you're skimming and you're going fast. And we've also been conditioned to intake lots of information really quickly and try to process it, which we don't. On top of that, you're constantly trained to look at short clips, like videos, like short ones, and pictures. So when you open your Bible, your mind is naturally re reaching for that sensory fulfillment of a photo or a clip or a video. The Word of God's boring to you. And your mind is trying to skim in your devotional time, if you do devotions. And you're conditioned to look at Scripture on your phone and skim it like you're reading the news feed or your article. And you're just looking for what entertains you or what catches your attention enough to look at it again. But this idea of eating God's Word, when it's used in the Old Testament, it's this picture of an animal chewing on a bone, gnawing on it over and over again. And so when we consume God's Word, it's a discipline. You have to, I would recommend hard, like real paper Bible. For a moment, put your, turn your phone upside down, put it away, don't do it on the computer. And I've gotten to the point where um, I don't use the study Bible when I do the devotions. I'll do that for study. Because there's too, much, too many of John MacArthur's notes or the Master Seminary comments in my MacArthur Bible. Right? Too, too much. Or my ESV study Bible. Too many notes. I'm like looking at the explanation and start arguing about theology. I just want the Word of God plain, simple, clean. And then I try to read it slowly. And I, and I don't let myself be like, okay, this is going to turn into a sermon. No, no, no. I'm eating it. I'm trying to go slow. And my mind's being distracted. Okay, so then I'm asking God, God, please help me to stay focused. I don't have a hunger. Help me to stay focused. And then I'm believing, God, if I don't read this, I'm going to yell at someone today. 
mainly my kids. So I need you to help me read this. What do you want to say to me? And then I'll go slowly. And I'll go over it again if there's something. I'll go over it again. So John 6, I might read the whole chapter uh, if I were doing that. And then I'd go back and look at it again. I'd go back and look at a certain section. And later I might look at a study Bible. But, but I just want to read it slowly and go over and over again. And what am I fighting? I am fighting and undoing what culture has trained me in this digital world to skim and to take everything lightly and to not process the Word of God. You see, it's not that your soul is not being fed. Your soul is naturally being fed all of these pictures, ideas, uh, videos, news feed, information, things that make you angry, things that make you happy, um, voices everywhere, demands from work, emails, text messages. You are being fed. And all of these things will tell you you don't need to think about God. You're too busy. There's more interesting things. So, so that's blinding you. And so what's happening is you go through life thinking that your soul's okay because it's filled. You don't feel empty until you have a crisis. While you're running with an empty tank the whole time. You don't have the Word of God. You've not consumed it. You've not, maybe you've tasted it. Your, your devotion, real quick, one verse and you're done, but you're not consuming it, so you don't have the nutrients. You haven't taken it in. And then so your soul is prone to wander. God, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for the courts above. Father, I, I, my, my soul is prone to wander even when I read Scripture. Help me, Lord, to eat this meal and to eat it right. So we see today two reasons why people reject Christ. But I want to put the big idea now into a positive. Then I want to preach more hope and land the plane. Here's the big idea. People reject Christ, we know, is because the Father has yet to soften their hearts. But the way that the Father softened our hearts is that we saw a Father who, even though we didn't deserve it, we deserved judgment in hell, He sent His Son to die on the cross for our sins. Put positively, the big idea is this. The Father softened our hearts. He chose us. He drew us to Christ. The Father softened our hearts by giving us bread when we deserved stones. Once again, the big idea, the Father softened our hearts by giving us bread when we deserved stones. And that bread is Jesus Christ. We deserved judgment. We, were, we would have rejected Christ like the Jews, yet he gave them bread. He gave them his son. Here's where I want to preach this into your souls. Consider yourself. What if you had children? And I'm not necessarily talking about spiritual now, but you can apply that. What if you had children who you raised and loved and they grew up and they turned away from you. They just cut off communication, turn away from you. But one day they come back hungry. And they ask you for bread. They don't deserve bread. What would you give them? Would you give them stone? Would you give them a stone? I'm not talking about you're going to go buy stone fire grill. Would you give them a stone? You would give them the best bread you can offer. And we're fallen sinners, and we would do that. If your children came back, you would give them bread. That's what Jesus does for us. That's what God the Father does for us. We were born rejecting Christ, but if somehow we come to the Father asking and recognizing that He's blessed us, and now we need his son. He would give us bread. Now, I'm borrowing from Matthew chapter 7, verse 9. But the principles of asking for what is good and asking and praying apply to us today. I'm borrowing the metaphor. Now you put the spiritual metaphor on it. If you are far from God, if you feel like you're far from God, and you come back, do you think the Father would turn you away? No. He will give you the bread of life. And if your children who once was raised in your home, raised in the church, come back one day because you've been praying 
and they come back to the Lord, would they, would the Father give them a stone? No, he would offer them once again bread of life. Because if we who are sinful would do good things for our children, even if they don't deserve it, how much more the compassion and mercy of our sovereign God to give us the best bread, his own son. His own son. And this not only applies to our unbelieving loved ones, but every single day we have to come back. And if our hearts at moments in time grow hard, God softens our hearts. We have to come back. We have to come back. The Father softened our hearts by giving us bread when we, when we deserve stones. And so this morning, there's some of us in here today who have forgotten that we deserve stones. You've forgotten that you deserve to eat a stone. But the Lord continues to offer you bread of life every single day. But you're getting bread from everywhere else in this world. And one day you will realize, I'm starving. But I know about that bread of life. I've heard about it. I need it. There is no routine. There's no diet. There's no process. You just go before the Lord right there and you ask. You believe and you consume that bread that's right there. And right there, he renews your heart. Same for your children. You have to pray for them. Same for all of those that we disciple and raise in and out of the church. We have to beg for the Lord. So the big idea is the Father soften our hearts by giving us bread when we deserve stones. Let us have the same heart for those whom the Father has yet to soften their hearts or those whom the Father needs to pull back and bring back in his timing. Let us leave this morning with hope because we know and have Jesus, our bread of life. Let's pray. Father, I pray, Lord, this morning that you would cultivate in our hearts a hunger to eat the bread of life, to believe in Jesus Christ and his work, but also to eat the word of God, which contains all of the teaching about Christ. Help us, Lord, to be hungry for the word of God. And Lord, I do pray for those who have loved ones who at one point were professing Christ or around Christ, but now they've strayed, Lord. We pray for hope and encouragement. We pray, Lord, we beg of you that you would save them, whether it be our children, our parents, our siblings, our loved ones, our friends, that you would bring them back to Jesus. Only you can. Help us never to lose hope. Help us to continue to be loving. Help us to be ready with the choice bread. When they, when they come back, that we would not offer them stones, but instead that we would be ready to offer them that bread, which is you. But you have to soften their hearts. So we pray, Lord, we beg that you would soften their hearts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.